As we gather this morning, our city is reeling, as is much of our nation and our world. The causes of suffering and anxiety are many. The coronavirus, shortages of supplies and equipment and space for the ill, despair over the nation's leadership and social isolation. On top of all of that, we now add the suffering and anxiety of a crashing economy. Job losses have been swift and widespread, as has been the loss of income and wealth. And none of us know how long any of this will last. The needs for us and our neighbors are many, let alone our world. For those of us who care about other human beings, the decisions we need to make about who we help and how have the potential to overwhelm us. Thank God we are not alone for this. Once again, I am astonished at how much this morning's scripture and this week's events in the world coincide. This scripture, this scripture from Matthew was chosen in November of last year for this specific Sunday, before we had even heard of coronavirus. And now, here we are, four months later, in a week in which debates have occurred at the highest levels of our government over who deserves economic help from the impact of this virus and who doesn't, and arguments have erupted over how the money should be spent, and our main text addresses these same issues of who deserves economic help and how should the money be spent. Our story doesn't address these issues at the national level. It addresses them at the personal level. And therefore, as we immerse ourselves within this story further, I believe that we will hear God's voice speak to us through Christ, acknowledging that the needs of the world are many, too many for us to fill, but if we attend to God's guidance, we will find help discerning who we should help and how. At the heart of this morning's story is a woman whose name we don't know, but whose act causes two very different reactions. The act itself we hear about in verses 6 and 7. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. The act of anointing the head of a guest with perfume was not unusual at all. 
but it was usually done with fairly common perfume or oil. This perfume was not common. In our version of the story in Matthew, we hear only that it was very expensive. When Mark and John tell this same story in their Gospels, they both note that the perfume was worth 300 denarii. That was about the same amount of money an average worker would make in a year. A similar dollar figure for Seattle would be about $75,000. So the act at the heart of our story is a woman breaking open a $75,000 bottle of perfume and pouring it out on Jesus's hair. Jesus's closest disciples are outraged. Verses 8 and 9, we hear, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. I will admit that every time I hear this story, I at least initially side with the disciples. That is a lot of money that's just dripping off the hair of Jesus. Our hygiene kits that we make here, we pack up and then we give to Wheel to give to their clients, cost us around $12 per kit. We figured out as a congregation that we can afford to make about 100 of these kits per month. If we sold a bottle of perfume worth $75,000, we could either fund this hygiene kit project for over five years, or we could make five times as many kits each month for one year. That is a lot of people served. The disciples seem to have a pretty good point. But Jesus sees things differently. Jesus sees the human being beside him and the heart that motivated her grand gesture. Just before this dinner scene that we have in Simon's house, Jesus has made a very important confession. In verses 1 and 2, the end of verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is, in, is two days away, and the Son of Man, so in two days, will be handed over to be crucified. That's the context for this scene. Jesus knows that his horrific death and all that leads up to it is just days away. Maybe this woman could see the sadness, even fear, in Jesus' eyes and was moved to let him know that he is loved. We don't know, but Jesus sees the love that moved her and calls her action a beautiful thing. She could have kept the perfume for herself. She may have been poor herself. 
This is likely the costliest possession that she has. And yet she gives it all out of love to Jesus. Jesus recognizes the enormity of the gift with this astonishing proclamation at the end of our story. He even uses a a very dramatic uh, phrase, Amen, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, fulfilling that word of Jesus because of the beauty of her gift and his recognition of it. Yet even if the disciples don't understand the woman's motivation, they can see her standing right there. And notice why Jesus first rebukes the disciples in verse 10. Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? Why are you bothering this woman? The disciples see only wasted resources. Jesus sees the person before him. Dale Bruner, the former professor of Whitworth College, highlights the subtext here as well as anyone. He writes, Somehow, the disciples' righteous indignation, excuse me, the disciples' righteous indignation is off target. Their politico-economic brilliance is at the expense of a human being. They are objectively correct, subjectively wrong. The disciples say, why this waste? Jesus says, why this hurt? The disciples say, why this irresponsible use of money? Jesus says, why this irresponsible use of a person? The disciples' concerns are economic and the distant poor. Jesus' concerns are human and the present poor. Jesus' concerns are so much on this present poor one beside him that he almost seems dismissive of the poor in general. In verse 11, we have this comment from Jesus. The poor you will have, you will always have with you. The poor you will always have with you. This is one of the most abusively misused scriptures in all of the Bible. Some use it as an excuse to do less for the poor than they could. Even a couple of years ago, when the Republicans in Cong- Congress were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the Republican representative from Kansas, Roger Marshall, distorted Jesus' intent in an interview that he gave for a website called STAT. He was quoted saying this, Just like Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. There is a group of people that just don't want health care, 
and aren't going to take care of themselves, just like homeless people. I think just morally, spiritually, socially, some people just don't want health care. The Medicaid population, which is on a free credit card as a group, do probably the least preventive medicine and taking care of themselves and eating healthy and exercise, exercising. And that's why he was excusing trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. This is not the intended outcome for Jesus' words, cutting services for those in poverty. Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, and the rest of that verse is vital. That's why I used that for our Hebrew First Testament reading, and you heard the full context of that particular verse, 1511. There will always be poor people in the land, just as Jesus said. But then it follows, therefore, because of this truth, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and sisters and toward the poor and the needy in your land. That's the fullness of the story. Jesus, I believe, is essentially saying to the disciples, if you really care about the poor, then you do something for them. There's plenty of opportunity. Again, Jesus is rebuking the disciples here for being concerned with economics and the distant poor, while Jesus himself is concerned with humans and the present poor one. And this is where I believe God speaks to us, here where we are, and gives us guidance for navigating a world of need. As I said earlier, there is far more need in our world than any one of us can answer. And most of us likely receive requests for help from all sorts of organizations and individuals, both local to international. One of the worst parts of my work as a pastor is trying to discern how to respond to the many requests for help that I receive every week. Reading this story of Jesus and the woman and the disciples reminds me of what Jesus lifts up to us as important. And it is often the person present with us. As a card-carrying leftist snowflake, very little gets me more infuriated than the ultra-rich exploiting, abusing, or neglecting people in poverty. And I will gladly argue with anyone about the disgusting hoarding of wealth by individuals and what should be done to counter that. But the truth is, I personally can do almost nothing to have a significant influence on our national problems. On the other hand, my choices can have a profound impact our choices can have a profound impact on the human beings in our immediate presence. I believe that the key for each of us 
is to attend to God's presence in our hearts and minds and listen for God's guidance. We won't always know clearly who to help and how, even when we are doing that. But many times we will sense God's leading. And sometimes that may even lead us to do something that may seem beyond common sense. I believe that only an incredibly strong awareness of God's presence and God's leading could have prompted Don Giuseppe Berardelli to the act of sacrifice he made two weeks ago. Many of you know this story, but it is worth repeating. On March 15th of this year, a 72-year-old Italian priest named Giuseppe Berardelli, suffering with COVID-19, voluntarily gave up his own ventilator to save the life of a younger patient. Berardelli died within days after that. It was not particularly sensible for Don Berardelli to do what he did, but it was an act of love. As William Barclay writes, the former Scottish pastor and commentator, as he said about the act of love by the woman in our story, both these acts show us that there are times when the common sense view of things fails. There is a world of difference between the economics of common sense and the economics of love. The woman in our story was motivated by an economics of love, as was Jesus' response to her. Both truly saw the person before them and cared for the one present with them. Again, it won't always be clear to us how God is leading and many times the economics of common sense and the economics of love will lead us to the very same decision. But sometimes they will differ. And I believe our story this morning reminds us of the importance of love. William Barclay had a closing line about this morning's story that I will let close this sermon as well. He wrote, There are so few lovely things in this world that one, shine, excuse me, that one shines like a light in the dark. At the end of Jesus' life, there was so much bitterness, so much treachery, so much intrigue, so much tragedy that this story shines like an oasis of light in a darkening world. In this world, there are few greater things that a person may do, any one of us, than leave the memory of a lovely deed. Amen.